We continue today in our series through Luke, uh, looking at uh, this gospel. We are today in chapter 2. We're actually going to back up just a little bit. Uh, last week we read through chapter 2, verse 21, and that actually is where we are going to begin today, beginning in verse 21, although in the ESV it spans a division break. Uh, pay no attention to that break. Uh, we are going to begin in verse 21 and read through verse 40 as we hear and see uh, some of Christ under the law uh, and uh, the greeting of Simeon and Anna in the temple. You can find that on page 857, if you picked up a Bible on the way in. Uh, Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 21, and reading through verse 40, page 857. And before we go to the Lord's Word, please join me again in prayer before Him. Let's pray. O Lord, our God, we come to you confessing that our ears are dull and our hearts are hard until you give us open ears and soften our hearts. And so we pray that you would allow us the grace to see our Savior and to hear the gospel preached to us and to receive it and to believe this word that you have spoken, and that you would make us hearers and doers of it, to rejoice together with saints of old who looked upon your salvation. We pray that you would do that same work in our hearts today as we read your word and do it by your spirit and for the glory of your name. In the name of Jesus Christ we ask, amen. Hear now God's word as we find it in Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 21. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord, Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles, and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts will be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they had performed everything 
according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing to its reading and to its hearing. Well, you know that there is perhaps nothing in all the world so full of potential as a newborn baby. That is part of the joy of those early years of parenthood when the proud couple comes home from the hospital and everything is clean and the onesies are folded and the nursery is prepared and in those brief, fleeting, quiet moments, sitting in the rocking chair, the husband, the wife, the mother, father begin to dream and think about what this child will become, what spouse they will take, what job they'll have, what what impact they will have on the world around them. And in those quiet moments, anything seems possible. And so as our children grow and age, that is part of the narrative that we feed them, that anything is possible. There is potential, and we tell them, you can be anything you want to be, and inevitably we always aim high. You can be an engineer or a doctor. You could be the next Tom Brady. You could be the president of the United States. And we raise our children drinking the milk of unlimited potential. Anything you want to be. And it continues that way until round about the time that all that potential in our children collides headlong into all the expectations of their parents. When your son comes home from his first semester at college and he has decided to switch his major to something unimaginably useless. (laughs) And instead of singing the song of unlimited potential, you begin to wax philosophical about the virtues of a degree in computer science and realistic expectations. And that's the way it happens. Despite what we like to tell our children, despite what we may like to believe ourselves, it is all too common, all too possible, for parents to have very uh, specific and very misguided expectations about who and what our children will become. Now, if you think that is true of you, or perhaps you think that's true of your parents, just imagine what it was like to look down at that baby in your arms and realize this is the one the angels have announced and the shepherds have welcomed. This is the one prophesied by holy men of old. This is the Savior the Lord is sending into the world. And certainly, like all parents, Mary and Joseph had these expectations in their mind of what their son was going to become. And inevitably, as Simeon warns Mary, there will come a day when all of those expectations will collide with reality. And the potential for frustration, the potential... Uh, for disappointment, was enormous. This is a theme of Jesus' ministry, by the way. Perhaps you notice as you read through the pages of the New Testament that it always seems that while he was on earth, those who were closest to him, those who knew who he was and knew what he was doing, had these unrealistic expectations of what he was about and what his salvation was supposed to look like. It happened with the disciples. It certainly happened with Mary perhaps Joseph, and it can happen with us too. Now, it is 
obviously easier for us to take Scripture in our hands and to look back and see what Jesus has accomplished than it was for Mary to take Jesus in her arms and to think about the future. But even we can have some misguided expectations and we can look back and and want to see things that aren't there or miss some very important things that the Scriptures are telling us. And so it is a blessing of God, I think, that we hear the rejoicing of Simeon and Anna in the temple in this passage today. These are saints with sanctified longing. They're both counted among the number of those who are waiting for what God will do and waiting in the Holy Spirit. They have realistic expectations and they help to sharpen and correct what it is that we find in Jesus and the expectations that we have about Him and His salvation. That's the theme of of our study today, and I think the theme of this passage is having realistic expectations about Jesus. What is it that we ought to see when we look to him? And the first expectation that we have to understand when it concerns, when this, when we're reading of Jesus concerns Jesus in relation to God's law. This really is the context that we find in this passage. It shows up at the very beginning, and it shows up at the end. This, by the way, Uh, is your warning that we're working today in the uh, concentric circles in this passage. We're going to end in the middle. Uh, And I told a friend recently that if you look hard enough, you can find chiasms anywhere in Scripture. Well, I found one this week. Uh, The point is in the middle. That's where we're going to end. But you find at the beginning and at the end, the law of God is everywhere. It comes into focus. Verses 21 to 24, we see three separate religious ceremonies are listed. And they span the first six weeks of Jesus' life. On day eight, of course, Jesus' blood is spilled for the first time when he receives the covenant sign of circumcision. And then 40 days after his birth, Mary has completed her time of ceremonial uncleanness. And so the whole family goes up into the temple. Probably they stayed in Bethlehem until this time. But they all go up into Jerusalem, into the temple, to do two things. One, to dedicate their baby and two, to offer a sacrifice of purification. So three things explicitly mentioned here for us, and we find over and over again in this passage that this is all being done, it says in verse 22, according to the law of Moses. Verse 23, verse 24, as it is written in the law of the Lord, as it says in the law of the Lord, it is put before our face. And then there's that summary in verse 39. They don't return to their own home until they do what? Until they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord. We are being shown here something of the piety of Jesus' family. He was born into this believing family where they take God's word very seriously. They want to do everything as the Lord has directed his people to do. They want to listen to his word and perform his word. They are pious people. And so we're seeing something of the piety of Mary and Joseph. And by the way, we also see something of their poverty. You may be aware, you may have noticed that when Luke uh, mentions the birds that Mary offers as her sacrifice, that what he's doing is quoting what we would probably call today a contingency clause. The normal sacrifice for a woman after she had completed her time of ceremonial uncleanness and when she offered her purification was two things. One, she would offer a lamb and she would offer a pigeon. But there in Luke, uh, I'm sorry, Leviticus chapter 12, uh, verse 8, uh, families who are too poor for the lamb are able to offer merely a pair of pigeons instead. And so here's the family Jesus has been born into. 
They desire to fulfill the law's demands, and yet they are able to offer only the most meager gifts unto the Lord. And this is the family that Jesus enters under the shadow of the law. Now, this portrait of Joseph and Mary and the culture of their family is a little more significant when you remember those words of wisdom from Atticus Finch. You can choose your friends, but you sure can't choose your family. And it's true. Maybe as we approach Thanksgiving, you wish that it were not true, but it is. It's true for every human being who has ever walked the face of the earth except for one. Except for the Son of God, the preexistent eternal one who handpicked his mother and father. He chose to enter into this pious, poor family. He chose a devout and faithful daughter of Israel. He chose this carpenter that Matthew tells us in Luke, and I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 1 uh, tells us that Joseph is a just man. He is a righteous man. And so Jesus chooses a family who would submit to the law of God, and in their submission, we see his submission. We see Jesus willingly taking upon himself burdens and ceremonies and signs of a law that, quite frankly, he did not need for himself. Have you ever considered that? The fact that Jesus receives the sign of circumcision, a wonderful thing for the Jewish people. The sign of circumcision was a reminder, it was a promise of relationship. I will be your God, you will be my people. And it was this this gracious, condescending mercy of the Lord to draw into fellowship with himself people who did not deserve to have fellowship with the living God. Jesus deserves and has fellowship with the living God. He is always in perfect communion with God the Father, God the Spirit. He does not need to be reminded. He does not need mere symbols in the flesh to remind him of what has always eternally been true, this fellowship between Father, Son, and Spirit, and yet he takes it upon himself. He is brought into the temple, it says in verse 22, to be presented to the Lord. Presented to the Lord as though he needs his adoptive father to make an introduction to his heavenly father. God meet Jesus. Jesus, God. As if the servant who is consecrated to the Lord by the fullness of the Spirit without measure needed a five-shekel offering and a public declaration to make it so. That's what happens. He's presented to the Lord. He's consecrated to the Lord, even though he already is with the Lord eternally and, and is already consecrated, and he does not need these things. And even Mary. Mary has just given birth to the righteous Son of God, the holy, immaculate, sinless Savior. What need does Mary have to be cleansed of the experience? She has just given birth to the sinless, spotless Lamb of God, and so she goes up and offers a pigeon for purification. Does she need to do that? What we see in this opening section is that Jesus, no, he does not need these things for himself, and yet he willingly submits to these things for us. This is what we learn in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, 
born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Jesus comes into the world under the shadow of the law in order to obey the law and submit to the law in order to give hope to those who have been crushed by the law's demands. This is why Jesus chooses this family. This is why he enters into the world through the people saddled with all 613 direct commands in the Old Testament. Commandments about life and death and food and clothing and sex and possessions and desires of the heart, every conceivable aspect of his life, he enters in and he places his neck under the yoke that Peter says in Acts chapter 15, neither he nor his fathers were able to bear. He comes willingly submitting to the law to bear that load in order to free us from it. And he lived and he obeyed and he loved the Lord his God in heart and soul and mind and strength. He fulfilled all righteousness in order to give his record of obedience to us by faith. Dear believer, I hope this is what you expect to find in Jesus. Every time you read your Bible and you see God's righteous character displayed in laws and commandments, every time you are reminded again how far you have fallen from the glory of God, and every time you consider the wrath that is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, every time you're confronted anew by your sin, every time you cry out with the words of Paul, wretched man that I am, Who will save me from this body of death? Remember the one who came into the world with a much different declaration. That in sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. So in relation to the law, what do we find? What should we expect of Jesus Christ? We should expect to find in him the one who is the fulfillment of God's law. The one who met every jot and tittle of its demands. The one who did not cast off any of the requirements of the law, but took it upon himself and took our burden of sin and disobedience upon himself. We ought to expect to see the one who is the fulfillment of God's law. That's our first point. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's law. But secondly, Jesus is is also the substance of salvation. Yes, Jesus came into the world under the shadow of the law, but he also came into the world under the pain of longing. The proverb tells us that hope deferred makes a heart sick. That's a good way to explain Simeon and Anna in the temple. That as Mary and Joseph bring their child into the temple, they are greeted by two heart-sick saints both representing the same longing for God's work in the world. This is one of Luke's favorite things to do, by the way. Luke loves to give us pairs. Very often, uh, significant people, important things, show up in Luke's gospel with a partner. And so we've seen Jesus and John. We've seen Mary and Elizabeth. We've seen even the angels and shepherds. And now we see Simeon and Anna. But they're really just two believers who represent the same longing for God in the world. And Luke uses this sort of show-and-tell dynamic. He goes back and forth between the two of them to give us a mirroring picture of godliness in these two saints. For one, he 
he tells us in verse 25 that Simeon is righteous and devout. We're simply told that. But then uh, with Anna, he shows us what devotion looks like. Verse 37, she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. They are united in this. They are both righteous and devout. And he tells us and he shows us. And then he tells us about Simeon, that the Holy Spirit was upon him, and that he was one who received revelations from the Holy Spirit. And then with Anna, he merely shows us, here is a prophetess, one who receives revelation by the Holy Spirit of God. And then finally, he, he switches, and we have to infer from what we see about Simeon that how old he might be. You notice there's nothing really, although we all imagine Simeon as this very old man, there's nothing in here that explicitly tells us how old he is. It talks about his death. He even says, oh Lord, now dismiss me. It's all over. I've come to the culmination. But he does tell us, Luke tells us explicitly that Anna is advanced in years. She is either 84 years old or she has been living as a, as a widow for 84 years, making her somewhere around 103, 105, something like that. She's a very old woman, and what we expect to see in Simeon is a mirroring image. And so here they are, these two aged saints, emblems of, of God's faithful in the world who wait for salvation and never waver. And they are longing, they are waiting, their hearts are pining for what God will do among His people. And the Holy Spirit puts them both in the same place at the same time so that they can be an encouragement to these parents with testimonies of God's goodness. And I hope that they're a, a, an encouragement to you as well. Even before we hear Simeon's witness, let them, let Simeon and Anna remind you that God always has his faithful people waiting in the world. It may be in many times and in many places the church seems insignificantly small, trodden underfoot by the, the kingdoms of this world, forgotten and cast aside. It may seem as though there clearly can't be any of God's faithful left. Remember the time of King Ahab, and that was Elijah's prayer. Oh Lord, even I, only I am left. There's nobody else. And it might be a time like the first century when the message of grace had so been obscured by Pharisaic legalism that people were beginning to forget that salvation actually worked from the top down and not from the bottom up. It wasn't something we do for ourselves, but it's something the Lord does for us. It might be in a time like the close of the 15th century when the church is so shrouded and darkened by ceremony and tradition and ritual that the light of Christ is barely seen at all. It might be in a time like our own where it feels like Christianity in America is retreating in the face of the advancing armies of pluralism and unbelief. But even then, even now, God has His faithful ones in the world. And they may be quiet. They may be out of sight. They may be obscure as the world looks at them. But they're there. And you can find them and see them. And when you see them, you will know them by their longing. You will know them by their hungering and thirsting after righteousness. You'll know them as we see Anna in prayer and devotion. That's what these two saints are. God's faithful people waiting in the world. And they don't look important from the outside. Their backs are bent and their eyes are dim. And some days their joints are so stiff that the only thing they can do is sit 
and pray in silence, but they are God's people, and they're waiting. They're waiting for redemption, and they're waiting for consolation, and they're waiting for Isaiah's word to come true. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 3, comfort. That's the word, consolation, translated in the Greek uh, translation of the Old Testament. Consolation, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And they're waiting for the comfort of the Lord. And suddenly the Spirit whispers into Simeon's heart, get up, go into the temple, because he's here. The one that I promised you would see, the one spoken of of old, the one to bring comfort, the way, uh, the one who is coming as the way of the Lord was prepared before him. He's here. The Christ of God is here. And who knows how it happened? Who knows where he found them? Maybe Mary and Joseph are still making their way through the press of the crowds. Maybe there's a line of parents waiting to meet with the priest and the fathers are are wrestling with lambs and pigeons and mothers are bouncing colicky babies. I don't know where they were, but he found them. And he's drawn to them and he stops them and maybe even a little bit awkwardly he says, Miss, I know you don't know me, but I need to see your baby. And Mary is beginning already to expect the unexpected with this child of hers and so she hands him over. And she watches as this old man cradles her son close to his chest, close enough to look into his eyes and to breathe him in and to, uh, to sprinkle his forehead with tears of joy. And as best he can, Simeon raises his shaking voice above the crowd and he cries out. He cries out to the Lord and he cries out to anyone else who will listen. Lord, now let your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. This is who he is. The very substance of salvation. The one that we expect to bring comfort and redemption personified. This is who Simeon sees in this tiny baby. As he lays his eyes on him, he is satisfied. He recognizes that his wait is over. Here's the culmination of all of his prayers and all of his fasting, all of the longing, all of the hunger of God's people. It's right here in this child, the substance of salvation. And have you ever considered the impact that all of this happens right there in the temple? This is not the main show that's happening that day, by the way. This is off somewhere else as everybody else is busy, perhaps as tourists to Jerusalem for the first time are staring wide-eyed at the silver and the gold and the marble and the bronze and their jaws are dropping at such marvelous buildings that will all be destroyed in 70 years. And Simeon's holding this child whose kingdom shall have no end. And he says, this is where glory is to be found. Salvation prepared in the sight of all the peoples. The glory of your people Israel. Salvation from the Jews. This is what it's about. And perhaps as in another corner of the temple, certainly in the court of the Jews, some 
some Pharisee is praying to himself that prayer that the Pharisees love to pray, Lord, I thank you that you have not made me a woman, a dog, or a Gentile. And what does Simeon say? Here is the one to bring light to the nations. Here's the one to break down the dividing wall of hostility and to create out of Jews and Gentiles one kingdom people, one man in place of the two, citizens together in one heavenly kingdom, one new temple built upon the cornerstone of this child, the one who is bringing light to the nations. To destroy all earthly pride, to think that because of who we are, there's something special about us. And he's there in the temple while priests and people are busying themselves with ritual. While the people in the crowds are praying for blessing. And they can smell the fire and the blood and the smoke. And yet Simeon's holding the Lamb of God in his arms and he's saying, here is the one. Here is the one that all of these sacrifices have been pointing to. Here is the Lord come down to his people. Here is the salvation of God bundled in blankets and cradled in his arms. And it's enough just to see him. It's enough just to behold him with eyes of faith and to believe and to know that the Lord is faithful. That's what Simeon saw in Jesus. The fulfillment of the law, the substance of salvation. And if you have seen him the way that Simeon has seen him, even from afar, even with eyes of faith, you will find it hard to do anything but to rejoice the way that Simeon and Anna rejoiced. I hope this is what you expect of Jesus. I hope this is what you plan to see when you look to him in faith. The fulfillment of the law and the substance of salvation. But there is one more expectation we need to get right about Jesus. It comes in the context of Simeon's announcement to Mary as he turns to Mary and to Joseph and he gives her this announcement that Mary is going to suffer. That's what it means in verse 35. He says that a sword, he says that a sword will pierce through your own soul also. It means that this son of hers, her baby boy, is going to bring sorrow into her life. It's a reminder that Christ came into the world under the shadow of the law, under the shadow of longing, and also under the shadow of the cross. With the prophetic warning that Mary will see him hated and maligned. She'll watch him hanged and suffering, and she'll be there as the sword of God's justice comes down upon Calvary, and she'll watch as that Roman spear is thrust into his side and the blood and the water flow. This is what Mary should expect of her son. I wonder if that was a surprise to Mary. I wonder if, judging by her experiences so far, this was a shock to her, because so far, everyone seems to be infatuated with this boy of hers. Shepherds and angels and random old men in the temple precincts, everybody loves Jesus. How could any of this happen to Jesus? How could this be what is coming for this son? What's not to love? He's got so much promise, so much potential. Just look at the way Simeon's wrinkled old cheeks are stretched in a smile from ear to ear and listen to the wonderful, marvelous things that are said about this child the Lord has given us. How could his life and my life be full of sorrow? 
But Mary, don't forget that your son has come with a job to do. Yes, it's true that he's the fulfillment of the law. Yes, it's true that he is the substance of salvation, but Jesus has also come to be the focus of judgment. Here's our third point. Here's the prophecy. That Jesus has come not only to be the recipient of God's justice, the focal point for all of God's wrath poured out for the sins of his elect, that he is the focus of judgment, but Christ has come to be the agent of God's justice. Jesus has come to do God's sifting work. That's the way that John will say it. In the very next chapter, take a look over there, chapter 3, verse 17. Speaking of the one who will come to baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And then read the next verse. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. When you think of the good news of the gospel, do you think of Jesus as the sifter of the elect and the reprobate? Do you think not only as, of Jesus as, as the recipient of God's justice, but the agent of God's justice? That is the prophecy that Simeon gives to Mary. This son, this child of yours is appointed for the fall and the rising of many. That is stark language. That word rising is used elsewhere in the New Testament, very specifically, of the resurrection. We are being reminded of the eternal consequences that hang in the balance of our response to Jesus. Here is the one who has come into the world so that some might be saved and others might be judged. Here is the one who has come into the world to secure the peace of God's elect and to seal the damnation of the reprobate and the wicked. And later Luke says, this is good news. That he is the focus of God's judgment. Now the difference between those two, between falling in judgment and rising with Christ, really focuses on our response to the sign of Jesus' suffering. That's what Simeon calls Jesus' suffering in his ministry. He says, he will be set for a sign that will be opposed. And this is passive language. The sign isn't opposed to something. The sign is opposed by things. The King James says he is set for a sign that will be spoken against. And so it was. The cross was sacrifice. The cross was satisfaction. But it was a sign. Jesus was crucified, displayed before the people for all to see. He was hung on a cross beside a public road, dying as a symbol of God's wrath poured out. And he hung there fulfilling the law in one more detail. That everyone who is hanged upon a tree is cursed. And despite all the rapture and the joy of Simeon in the temple, as he hung there, many opposed him, many spoke against him. They wagged their heads and they hardened their hearts. And they derided him. And rejected him. And that's the way it still happens. The good news of the gospel goes forth. Salvation full and free in Jesus. The message of Christ and him crucified. And what happens? Many here shake their head. 
and they harden their hearts. And they call it a farce, and they call him a liar, and they malign the name of the Son of God, all so that they can convince themselves that they don't need what Jesus can offer. And if you think that it only happens in blatant atheism and shouting unbelief, think again. This sort of rejection happens every day in faithful churches just like this one. It happens quietly often, imperceptibly so. But the deceitfulness of sin creeps like a shadow into hearts that are already darkened by doubt. And then eventually when they walk away, when they can at all, you know those responses that you hear. Why? Well, you, you heard the gospel. How could you walk away from it? You heard the message of Christ and you know what they'll say. I, I don't have time for church. Christianity is too restrictive and you Christians are too judgmental. I can't swallow all that supernatural stuff. And you've heard it. You, you've heard more. You can add to that list. You know the responses that people give for why they walk away from it, why they turn their heads and harden their hearts and speak against it. But despite all the reasons that are given, there's really a much, uh, much, more, uh, a much larger issue at play. And it's the difference between life and death. It's the difference that spans the gap between falling in judgment and rising in joy. And the question that makes the difference is, what think ye of Christ? What do you say of him? Is he a teacher who fell into the wrong hands? Is he some other political criminal, some upstart Messiah who thought that he was something and turned out to be nothing? Or is he the living Son of God? Is he the one who came in righteousness and perfection? Is he the one who laid down his life as a sacrifice for sinners? Is he the one who was raised again in vindication? Is he the one who is coming again, and do you expect to see him? Do you ache to see him coming on the clouds in the glory of his Father? Do you long to hear him call your name and say, Well done, good and faithful servant. Do you spend time imagining the joy of what it will be like to look in his face. You see, in the end, it all comes down to expectations. And if this is the one that you are longing for, brothers and sisters, rejoice. Because all of your waiting and all of your longing is not in vain. Please join me in prayer. O oh Lord, our God, you who have given your Son up for us all, we thank you for the gift of his righteousness. We thank you that he is your salvation, prepared in the sight of all the nations to create one people in him, one new temple built on him as the cornerstone. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would give us faith to look to him and expect to see him coming, to wait with anticipation to be called by you and welcomed by you because of what he has done and who he is. Oh Lord, give us a longing for Christ. If any are here who do not know him, if any are here who have not closed with him, we pray that you would work in their hearts to work that same longing today. 
pray that you would draw them in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ, the substance of salvation, the fulfillment of your law, the one who has taken justice on our behalf. O Lord, draw us in faith to him, even as we come to your table, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.